so I'm Deirdre Enright and Jenny Givens. We are um, the directors of the Innocence Project Clinic, and we are the privileged people who got to help get Darnell out and into the arms of his fiance. Um, so we thought we would start by just asking him general questions so that you all could know sort of his backstory before we talk about the issues and all the things that, that went wrong that need to be corrected. So Darnell, I think the best thing to do is to tell us about that day that you got plucked off your street. <laughs> uh, first of all, I want to say hello to our staff, uh, students, you know. To me, this is to utmost the most honorable day for me that it has been since I've been out because 428 days ago, I was just coming out of a literal dungeon uh, after having done 28 years for something I didn't do. Uh, to go back, reverse it to that first day that this situation happened, I was just a young, normal 18-year-old. You know, I was trying to uh, go about fulfilling a music career. I don't know whether or not y'all ever heard of the rap group Public Enemy. The guy Flavor Flav had that big clock on his neck. <laughs> well, anyway, we were trying to pull together some tracks so we could get a demo. And so I met one of my buddies who's from New York. We used to go to the gym and box together. And so, you know, that particular day, one of my buddies from Norfolk State, he dropped me off there. Uh, as we begin to talk, it, it starts the night before. As we begin to talk about things, you know, uh, my, my friend never came back, so I couldn't get a ride. And so I had to get a bike to ride back to where I lived at, which was probably about 10 miles away. That was a long ride, bike ride. I came back the next day, rode the bike back. And so my friend, Michael Norfleet, uh, he just passed away a couple of months ago. He asked me uh, certain things. Well, how do you want to put this track together? So we were just, we were brainstorming. I'm like, you know, nothing particular, just brainstorming. But, you know, I think if we put this type of track on it or this type of drum beat on it. And so when we walked out of the house, I never knew that this day would totally alter my whole sense of how I saw things. I walked into an investigation of a rape of a 10-year-old uh, Caucasian girl, just straight from the house. And the officers, I thought, you know, because I grew up around officers who were very kind. You know, we shook hands with the officers. We, I live in Virginia Beach. We laughed with the officers, you know, if we were walking home late at night or something. You know, they, they would, you know, sometimes ask us, you know, you need a ride or something because it's kind of late out here. So I did not realize that that day, my naivety that I would run across an officer that really would make me a target. And so they questioned me about what did I see. We had saw a young, uh, maybe a guy, middle-aged guy walk by us. He asked my friend for a light. And once my friend, you know, gave him the light or whatever, he walked across, you know, to apartment complex. And the police said, look, once we ran into them, they said, well, look, can you uh, tell us what you saw? We're thinking, I mean, we really didn't see anything, just a guy walked by. But anyway, they questioned us that night. They asked me to put on a hat that we had because I, I guess evidently I had a hat. It was a Chicago Bull hat that I guess the person who committed the crime had. That was a very popular hat at the time. It was a fisherman's hat with Chicago Bull's emblem. So, you know, I didn't think anything of it. You know, my conscience is clear. And so when I, I guess later on that evening, the officer, he drove me home. Two days later, I meant to go and meet my friend down at the beach. I didn't know that the police had already targeted me and pegged me as the primary suspect of the person who raped uh, a young girl. Um, that right there was the beginning of uh, one of the most horrible times in my life, you know, because that Friday night, from that Friday night, it would take from 1990 to up into 2018 for me to walk out and see my family again. You know, uh, of course, I got on a bond for a few months, but to really live, I had dreams, I had visions, I had goals, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Those things were pouring through me. I wasn't a guy out in the streets acting a fool. You know, I live in Virginia Beach, Kempsville area. I don't know whether anyone in here knows about Virginia Beach area, right? But that's not a very gangster area. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> most of the guys out, most of the guys were either trying to work on uh, being an athlete that was popular. They wanted to open their own business up. They wanted to get into real estate. This, these are things that we spoke about all the time. And so that day, having done anything but walk out of the house, nothing. 
you know, had witnesses. I had my friend's mother. She was a pastor's wife. Um, she had brain cancer. She was sitting on the couch. I was beside her. I was watching Family Feud. I didn't know up the road, maybe like a quarter mile away, a crime was being committed. So I walked right into that particular day of uh, uh, investigation, smack dab into an investigation that who thinks that your day is going to be altered? I only wanted to have a music career, but I ended up being uh, an inmate for 27 years. So I can't really talk very much anymore. Um, <laughs> can you tell them about the interrogations and how they claimed to get evidence against you? Yes, um, that, the Friday night in August, I believe it was August 12th, when they pulled me in for investigation, uh, I was walking across the street, you know, they said they saw somebody look like Darnell Phillips or whatever. And I don't know how you saw that in the dark look like me, but anyway. <laughs> They pulled up on the car, they took me down to the police station. I asked them the whole time, I'm saying, why am I going to the police station? You know, uh, they, they just told me, kind of be quiet. And they would just look at each other and just kind of smile. I'm like, well, what is he smiling about, you know? So I, I didn't know anything because I didn't think about two days before when I had been questioned by the police officers. Because like I said, I, I hadn't done anything. So when I got down to the police, uh, police uh, interrogation room, I sat in the room, I might have sat in that room maybe about an hour. Um, he kept, you know, just walking in and out, you know, look at me. I guess they were trying to get me restless or whatever. And in that process of time, you know, I kept asking them, you know, can I call my mother? I wasn't thinking about a lawyer because, you know, I really didn't have anything to cover up. And I wasn't that familiar with the legal system. I never thought you can get locked up behind just being out. So when that night, I met an officer named Detective Curley and Detective Curry. I guess they were playing good cop, bad cop. Uh, they were saying, well, you know, your friend's in the next room and he's, he's telling me that you did it. Oh, that's, I said, that's impossible. that's impossible. Then the other one came in, he was like, look, you know, we just want to help you. So they were just going back and forth for hours. But my whole objective was I want to get to the phone because look, and I want to call my family. It's, it's kind of late. It's like after midnight, I want to talk to my mother or my father. I had a very close knit family both mother and father there, you know? And later on, maybe about three or four o'clock in that morning, I met a guy named Sean Hoffman, detective. Now, mind you, I had just been questioned for hours with another officer, two officers that day, right? I didn't tell him anything because I didn't have anything to tell him. And so, you know, 18, at that time, you know, they, they took me down to the police station and they, to the magistrate and they began to, you know, give me the paperwork. I didn't know what the paperwork was. Uh, I'm looking at the paper, I'm like, well, what is this? I'm seeing crimes up here. I'm like, well, what is this? It says rape. This says, he said, man, that's your life. That's the first thing he said when, it, when I met He said, that's your life. I said, what do you mean my life? He said, you don't have any more life. Now, you're telling an 18-year-old that you will never go home. I'm like, what do you mean I'll never go home? Well, a little unbeknownst to me, they had told my mother that same thing when they went to the house trying to, you know, find clothing or whatever, right? And so I'm sitting there and I be, you know, I begin to cry. 18 years old, you're telling them, because like I said, I was, a, I was a dreamer. And you're telling me I'm never going home. And so, you know, I begin to, you know, kind of, kind of cry, you know. I was like, man, you know, that, that, that kind of hurt me. I wasn't bald and boohoo, but that kind of hurt me, you know. And so he started getting to my ears, acting like he was trying to comfort me. And he kind of pulled me in. And he was like, you know, he started calling me an animal, a moocher started, you know, saying little things to me. And right then I said, oh, you're not trying to help me, man. You're trying to destroy me. And he said, because you did it. And I'm like, well, then he kept, I kept, we got in a kind of com real combative about, you know, uh, where my whereabouts. But I said, look, man, I, I was not there. I don't know why you're doing this, but you have the wrong individual. You know, and I tried, I said, man, I don't want to talk to you. And so after a while, he just kept, he'd go out, he'll come back in, he'll, he'll well, he'll, he'll argue with me. And Finally, he told me, he said, look, you don't have to worry about ever going home, but you know, if you want some help, he said, I'll give you some help. He said, I already know you did it. I'm like, <laughs> I said, I keep telling you, I did not do this. I said, why are, you, why are you saying these things? The animal thing was really getting me because I'm like, well, why is this guy automatically assuming it's about me? I said, I'm, I'm an intelligent person. Why, why is he calling me an animal? And then he kept telling me, I'm gonna take that young girl. He said, who do you think they're gonna believe, me or you? He said, I'm gonna take that young girl and I'm gonna bring her into the courtroom with pigtails. And as soon as he said, they see you, a big man, and, and see her, they said, you're going to prison. You're never getting out, but I can help you. And so he kept trying to fill me in with 
I guess like, well, you know, well, what color was, was her underwear? I said, I don't know. He said, what, well, what color was, I said, I don't know. He said, yes, you do, yes, you do. I'm like, I don't know. And he just kept trying to really fill me in. Finally, me personally, I said, well, no, whatever, man. Whatever you say, man, whatever. I didn't think any more about it. You know, I'm like, whatever you say. And so when he got up, he said, well, that's all I need. And I'm like, well, I said, I didn't tell you anything. That was it. He said, yes, you did. He just kept going. I said, why is this dude doing this thing? And so about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock that morning, they were bringing me down into uh, the jail cell. That's the first time I had ever been in the jail cell. I had never been in trouble. Not so much as an open container or anything. Throwing a soda can on the ground, you know. And that was my introduction into uh, being incarcerated. That, Tuesday, that Monday morning when I went to court, the first thing I heard was saying, well, you know, we have a confession. Howbeit it's an unsigned confession. Because <laughs> I didn't sign anything or anything. It's an unsigned confession. Uh, but, um, you know, the man said he took the papers and papers. I, what I told him, he wrote it down. Balled them up, threw them away, then he went to typing or whatever, right? You know, mind you, I didn't sign anything, I didn't tell this guy anything, but nevertheless, I'm listening to a whole uh, a litany of things that he said I told him, you know, to which I couldn't have known, period. And so uh, that day there, you know, uh, 18 years old, I kind of felt like, you know, my life was really over, you know, because uh, he told me, they told me what each of those charges represented. I heard it. You know, I was facing at the time three lives and three lives, thirty years, or something like that. So, um, Sean Hoffman, the cop that he was just talking about, um, was within maybe the last year was arrested for trying to kill his wife and throwing her down the stairs, and so he's been suspended from the police force. He's, he's back on the force now, though. Oh, really? Yeah. He's, he's a lovely, lovely guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and he literally turned. Charges were dropped. Charges yeah. were dropped. Charges so maybe were dropped. He's not. I don't care what we say about Sean yeah. Hoffman. Um, <laughs> uh, so at the same time, so they did turn that that unvideotaped, unsigned, no written, nothing. Pro prosecutors went with that as a confession at trial, um, with absolutely nothing um, behind it. Um, and I think you should also tell them about the how they got the IDs, starting from taking Polaroids to the hospital. Yes, um, as far as what, what, what the police officers did? Yeah. Okay, they got the IDs that night. My friend Michael, Michael was 16, I was 18. I had only been 18 like six six months. But, you know, we, we used to, we go to the gym, we box together, you know, he, I and my cousin. So, you know, I, I kind of drew to the guy. Normally my friends were at Norfolk State or Hampton University. So that night when the police officers, they drove uh, Michael and I to his house, they asked us, would we mind take a picture with, you know, with the hat on? And I'm like, well, yeah, it's my hat. So they took pictures, little Polaroid pictures, had us standing by the wall. They asked Michael, you know, take a picture. Get the picture. They didn't think any more of it. And so from those Polaroid pictures, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't think anything. I mean, why, why would we think anything about it? So um, those were the pictures that that night that I believe it was Detective Curtis Hoffman, they brought those pictures to the victim with that uh, Chicago Bulls hat on. And that's when, uh, I guess, that's when a lot of the dirt started really, <laughs> really started coming into play. Well, so what, is this on? No, mm. it's on. So what happened is they go to the hospital with two photos, one of Darnell and one of Michael Norfleet. Darnell is the only person in the Chicago Bulls hat. And so the victim has described her attacker as, as wearing this, a hat like this. And so they show her two photos. She is still, she's been physically assaulted. She can't see out of one eye. She's 10 and she's just, this is the night of the offense. And they bring two photos, and she says, well, I don't recognize the faces, but I recognize the hat, basically. So from then on, that's turned into, oh, she ID'd Darnell. And so his picture is later the only one put in a second lineup after she's already seen him. Um, and so there was never a definitive ID, but it was certainly cast as such by the prosecutor. So now they have a confession and an ID. 
And this might also be the time to say, uh, as part of our investigation to, to help Darnell, um, we found that the victim had moved to Atlanta and she was in some sort of facility, but it was impossible for us to tell what. So um, I literally just got on a plane and flew to Atlanta and went to the facility where mercifully the gate, it was a gated community and the gate was broken. Mm -hmm. And the guys who were trying to fix it said, oh, do you want to just go in? And I said, yeah, I do <laughs> just want to go in. And um, I found her, she was in the beginning of rehab. She'd had an unbelievably terrible life of drugs and alcohol and violence. And she had just reoffended. She was in a program. And I got to her counselor and told her what I was doing there. And I said, it's, it's probably going to be in the paper, and we just didn't want her to read this in the paper. That's, so I came. So she can ask me anything she wants to ask me, whatever. So I then spent hours with May, um, and who you know, sobbed hysterically and about the news that there might be DNA and that it wasn't Darnell's DNA. And then in the course of all of that, with her counselor present, she said, I didn't ever ID him. And she said, they told me to ID him. They said he had raped other children. They said there was DNA. They said, so, so they absolutely. They said he confessed. They said he confessed. So, um, and her, her testimony in court was described in the newspapers as sort of militaristic, like very programmed and very, um, which she said, I was trying to do the answers that they had told me in preparation. So. She's now an advocate for Darnell. Darnell, do you want to talk a little bit about the trial and your trial attorney and what you thought of how things proceeded and what you expected <laughs> at your trial and what really happened? Yeah. I expected, I came out on, I stayed out on bond maybe about eight months, I'm thinking. Uh, during that time, I didn't really, to be honest with you, I mean, let, me be, let me be transparent as possible. After that, my, when I went on bond, my outlook was totally uh, destroyed of uh, society and of the police force. One time I waved police, talked to them. Then I was totally terrified of the police force. You know, I had went to jail, stayed there for five months, and, you know, I got a chance to see really some, some vile things in the jail. So, you know, I'm on bond now. I'm 18 years old, and so uh, when I went to time and went to trial, I didn't think I was going to get locked up. Uh, you know, I, even though I had went through that particular five-month period, but when I went to on trial, I went to the back of the courtroom uh, because my lawyer he informed me he said, "Look, Darnell, don't go to uh, the defendant's stand. Don't go to that table." He said, "Go to the back of the courtroom." I went to the back of the courtroom with the rest of my friends. You know, some of the guys who were actually they were witnesses to where I was. You know, at that time, you know. The, the, I saw a prosecutor, they grabbed the lady, May, the girl May, and they said, look, May, um, you know, I guess come on with us, because I saw her talking to her. And so they walked her right to where I was amongst like three or four young guys. And she kind of turned her to me, and I'm like, man, because <laughs> I, I, I had never seen the girl, you know. Uh, they had told me I was in a saddle port with her. I didn't know that, you know. Evidently, she didn't know me either because, you know, if something like that happened to you, you know, I, I would scream out if somebody did something to me and I'm seeing them again. Didn't happen like that. They, she kind of pointed her in my direction. And so my lawyer, when he saw it, he told me, he's like, well, it's going to be a problem. And I'm like, well, what, what's going to be the problem? I didn't do anything. He said, Donna, you don't. So we, we ended up, I got on the stand. Uh, they, you know, they did the jury pooling. And you know, I had a, you know, I'm not a racist person, but I had an all-white jury, you know. Everyone was older than me, like I think the youngest, probably like 20-something years old. So immediately I said, oh man, I said, this is going to be a problem here, right? I knew enough to know, I said, this is going to be a serious problem, you know. And I already saw the prosecutors, how they were plotting, you know, they would give my lawyers uh, blackened papers. They'd look at the paper, I said, hold on. They would look and they would say, hold on, what, what's on her file, you know? They'd go, she got a whole written page of stuff, but they would black out information. And so I really... That day at trial, that was, that was horrible, you know. Uh, had a bunch of cameras in my face. Uh, they portray, them portraying me, what hurt the most was they portraying me as a, a rapist, a molester. And I'm, I'm like, man, I, you know, I had, at the time I had a fiance, gorgeous fiance in Norfolk State. I'm like, what? It, it, that, that was painful for me, you know, because my mother, she had a daycare center, so I, I love kids, you know. Um, 
it was a three-day trial. First day, you know, I'm looking at myself on TV and stuff and looking at this, you know, and second day, but the third day when finally, uh, it was like eight o'clock at night, you know, I heard the most hardest words I ever heard, you know. Uh, they say, Donna Phillips, uh, we stand up, we found you uh, guilty. The jury, I'm like, found me guilty? And I asked my lawyer, I said, man, what does that mean? Am I going home? I, I didn't know anything. You know, he's like, he's words he used. I don't curse. He said, hell no. <laughs> That's what he said to me. I said, you mean I'm not going home? I, he said, he said, he said, no. And so at the time, you know, it was in the newspaper. They printed it as, uh, I said, judge, please, I didn't do it. I did say that. I said, judge, please, I didn't do it. And so they took me to in the back of the courtroom, and, uh, back where, you know, they got the little, uh, I guess, holding cells at whatever, right? And I'll tell y'all something about that later on that was, that let me know that day that I would be walking out of there. But anyway. Wait, I think we should go where you're going. Well, yeah. <laughs> they said, I, I'm going to be honest with you, when the man said they, they found me guilty and I would have 100 years, uh, when they said that, it's like the judge's voice. I don't know what happened, but like the judge's voice just kind of, it was blocked out. And I felt real peaceful for something. I said, man, I just started smiling. I'm be honest, I started smiling now. What they interpreted it as, I don't know. But I started smiling because I felt like this is not over. And so they took me to the back of the courtroom, you know, uh, went to the back of the courtroom. They said in paper they carried me out, which wasn't true. They had me by the arms and they guided me out. I went to the back. They took me to the back and in the back where the holding cell was, there was a door jar. You can see cameras out there and everything. But the cell that they put me in, the officers put me in, they never closed the cell. I didn't even have cuffs on. That's what was crazy. They took the cuffs off of me. Now, I don't know whether they expected me to run. I don't know what it was. But um, that door being open, I said, man, isn't there something? I, I said, man, this door is open. What, what, what the world's going on? And I thought, to me personally, I was like, well, you know what? Maybe it's, I just assigned that, look, you know, you can walk out of here one day. And so what I did, I was so peaceful. Now, mind you, I could have ran out that door, right, if I was being erratic or something like that. You know, I, you know, they had just since me 100 years, what am I going to lose? And so I just shut the door, and I sat back. And from that day, I promised myself, and, I, and I'm a person I've been brought up in faith, so, you know, I promised myself in God, I said, you know what? I said, as long as I have to be here, I said, I'm, I'm going to be here. And I said, as long as I have to be here, I'm going to not let this place change me. And, and that's what I told myself, and that's what, that was my resolution the whole time. You know, I stayed there 27 years. Tell everybody about how we all met each other. <laughs> hmm. Talking about when... Uh, you. Oh, I meant Dennis Let's first. talk about your bossy sister. <laughs> oh, I'll let you tell that because uh, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't there. See, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there. That's true. Fair enough. Um, so uh, it was what year? It was very early in the clinic having was, started. Actually, that was, be honest with you, but that was right after my father died. My father died July 29, 2009. And, and then we, so we had just opened. About a, about a, maybe about a, about a week later, uh, Dennis came out, met Dennis Barrett. Right. Yeah. So uh, one of the first clinic students was obsessed with Darnell's case. He had gotten assigned to it, and he went to meet him. And then uh, not that long after, I came back from somewhere, and Cindy Derrick, the secretary on our hallway, said, um, there's people here, and they aren't going to leave. And I said, well, who are they? And she said, I don't know. She said, they have boxes and bags, and they're staying. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I went to the clinic door, and there was Marvella, and your nie and her niece was Andrea. with her. Yep. Mm -hmm. And she said, um, I know you're very busy, and I know I don't have an appointment. And she said, so we'll just like go to the movies and go to dinner, and you'll just call us when you have time to sit down and talk to us, which I eventually just said, I, you, you win. <laughs> and we went into the clinic, and she told me that she had all the transcripts. She told me the story. Um, at that point, the family had already raised the money. One of the issues in this case was that there was a hair on a blanket that they wrapped May in. And they said that the hair was, a, the word on the reports is always, a negroid hair. And they claimed that that belonged to Darnell. And as probably everyone in the room knows, 
that kind of microscopic hair comparison testimony is now ridiculed by all. So their family raised enough money to have that hair tested on their own, and the judge ordered the testing. And not only did it come back to not be Darnell's hair, it also wasn't a Negroid hair. It belonged to a Caucasian, a man who had a Caucasian mother. So all of that had transpired when we met him and that was how we sort of, that was where we were when we started our investigation um, into his case. And Jenny, I think you should talk about physical evidence and finding it. Well, and also I think it's important that to note that by the time Darnell and Marvella came to the clinic, I think your family had spent close to $100,000 on appeals um, and DNA testing and got nowhere lost at at every level um and so i came to the clinic in 2015 and um a big issue for the 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 clinic in prior years was that they they couldn't find the physical evidence or couldn't find couldn't determine whether there was any physical evidence left in the case and um the police refused to answer the question about whether they had any physical evidence um, despite mul multiple requests. Um, and in fact, w the, the clinic team was ultimately referred to Detective Hoffman, the guy who extracted the confession, um, and with any inquiry about the evidence in the case. And then he, of course, we didn't get an answer. So um, in 2015, I happened to be talking to the clerk um, in the circuit court in Virginia Beach about um, another case, uh, or we, I was talking to her, um, oh, she, I, was, I don't remember why I called her, but anyway, we were talking about um, uh, another case, another actual innocence case that had just gotten testing granted, and she was asking me if I knew anything about that case, and I said, I don't, but I said, I wish we could do the same in this other case we have. Um, Darnell Phillips, I said, but we can't get any answer on whether there's any physical evidence left. And she said, oh, we have a bag of stuff here in that case. And I was like, uh-uh. Um, and I said, okay, so we'll be there tomorrow. And then um, I took two students with me the next day, and we went down, and sure enough, in this paper bag was... Um, the perk kit from the victim, the victim's clothes, the clothes they connect, they collected from Darnell's house. Um, so everything that you you could hope for physical evidence-wise. Um, now, the problem was it was all in the same bag. Um, so the integrity of this evidence uh, was at best questionable. But there were some things that were still, you know, some, some um, parts of the perk kit were still kept separately. So... So then we began this quest to get DNA testing done. Um, and that was a long road as well. Yeah. You want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and what you thought about that process. Yeah. Because you got to see some of it yeah. in court. Well, prior to, I, I, I fancied myself an uh, institutional attorney <laughs> at mm -hmm. one time because, look, my family had spent so much money. You know, my father, like I said, you know, he, he you know, he's a working man, working class man. Work, and, and so... They spent all that money, so you know I started doing things pro se because you know I started reading the law books in the jail. Even though I had an attorney, I didn't really trust him, you know, for good reasons. And so in two, I remember in 1999, you know, we found that there were two places: there was Selmar in Maryland, and there was a place in London. That place in London cost too much money to get it tested, and so since there was only two people doing this in the Department of Forensics of Science, they weren't doing mitochondrial tests. We went with. Uh, we tried to go with Selmar, but then all of a sudden, the Department of Defense, they agreed to do it, which I, and I found, found it kind of strange. And so they did it, and on September 2001, I had found out the testing that they tested, hey, it wasn't mine. I knew this, but... Darnell, you're talking about the... The first. The hair test. Oh, yeah, I'm just taking them did. back to that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I just want to make sure they know that. Okay, yeah, because yeah, yeah, there's a whole lot to this. <laughs> September, <laughs> it, it really is, right? Trying to condense everything is kind of hard, right? But September 2001, I thought, okay, wow. You know what? There was the 20... That was what they called at the time the 21-day rule, where you had to have everything filed after you found the information, you know, in order to get in court. You know, so my lawyer, you know, we waited up to that time. Once he found out, he said, look, Darnell, we know the DNA's not yours. 
I'm going to do what I can to help you. 20 days came. I said, Mom, I call home because, you know, I'm working out and doing things. I'm saying, man, I'm about to go home. I'm about to get my life back. You know, I had, I've been, at the time, I had been locked up like 10 years. I said, man, I'm about to go home. Everybody in the institution, I told everybody, man, I'm about to go home. Guys were happy. Staff members were happy. But then the 21st day came, you know, I'm like, Mom, she said, son, trust your attorney. He knows what he's doing. I said, Mom, I'm telling you, he has not informed me of anything. 30 days come. I'm thinking the stuff is filed. I said, dude, you know, I called him up. He said, darn it, I haven't done anything with it. At that time, keep in mind now, DNA was at its you know, early stages. He didn't know what to do with it. You know, we didn't have any, really any patterns to go after. Uh, Earl Ruffin or some other guys, and uh, Earl Ruffin or Washington, they had got a little bit after that. They had got you know, released on DNA. So you know, they were pretty much fresh in it. And even though it had excluded me, nevertheless, from 2001 to 2004, I had to wait to uh, for a law to come out so I can go ahead and start putting stuff in pro se. You know, uh, 2004, I put in a writ of action innocence, but I put it in backwards. The deadline for the, the DNA testing, you know, to put it in for the 21-day rule, they had already passed. But I said, you know, look, I'm going to shoot my shot. What, what can it hurt me? I already got 107 years. You know, and so I put it in. Supreme Court, they acknowledged, look, DNA wasn't mine, but of course, statute of limitations. Uh, after that, I had a do other little fighting in court, tried all I could, but it didn't work. I've had a, a, a couple of times whereby I was called by an attorney to tell me, look, you know, uh, they said that they found some more DNA. I didn't know it. What it was, it was just the blood coming back from the test that they did with the mitochondria, right? It was my own blood. <laughs> so, I, you know, all those times, you know, it was like a lot of ups and downs because, you know, you're expecting something to relieve you. you you're expecting, you, you hope to go home, and you, you know it, you got a sense that you're going to go home, but you're not seeing any type of physical manifestation with it. And so when I heard from Jenny, uh, well, Jen, you're the one who called me, actually. No, no, you called the institution I had a call. I, I think we had was, you was call, you? and then weren't we together? No, somebody told me. Uh, Jenny and I were just bawling, that's all no, I No, because you told me to sit down or something. Uh, <laughs> but she asked me, was I sitting down? You know, I was, you know, I had came off of the yard, you know, and. She said, are you sitting down? I'm like, no, what's going on? I'm wet. I'm soaking wet. I ran inside, you know. And she's like, well, you know, they found some testing to which I'm like, man, finally, you know, I'm going to see this thing. And that was, what, 2016? Yeah. Well, we found it in 2015. 20, 2015. So, you know, they said they were going to put things in and get it tested. First DNA test came back. They didn't have anything. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm all like, well, come on, now. what's, what's going to take place now? Then they, they sent it out more and more, more and more. I was like three times, didn't yeah. find anything. Then finally, uh, I was on a lockdown, and uh, I had an opportunity. I had called Deirdre. When I talked to Deirdre, Deirdre had said she heard about a guy in California did something like the, the vac. Wet vacuum. Wet vacuum. It's very professional. <laughs> Wet call it MVAC? MVAC. Yep. And she said, I know they said that they can, I guess, withdraw and separate all the DNA. I'm like, okay, let's, let's give it a shot, you know? You know, I said, I don't have anything to hide, so let's, and so they did it, and I'll let you explain that. You're better with the scientific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, so the problem was that um, uh, the court granted the, our testing request, said send the evidence to the Department of Forensic Science, that's the state lab here. The state lab um, did what testing they could, and they couldn't find any male DNA on any of the material. So that's when we sent it to a second lab who employed a different method out in California. They couldn't find anything. We sent it to the third lab using this new technique that allows them to collect material in a different way. They, they did find male DNA. Um, so we were all getting very excited now. Um, and it took a long time for the testing and the results to come back. And there were, you know, a few different spots on the victim's clothing where they found male DNA. They um, excluded Darnell as a contributor to those spots on the victim's um, uh, waistband and shorts. There was a spot on the victim's underwear, and they couldn't get a full profile. They got like three out of 16 um, uh, locations, markers. 
So that really gives you no information. But with that information, it wasn't enough to exclude Darnell because they didn't have enough sort of information to compare. So in the in the state's eyes, that became well. There's a match on the um, uh, on the location on the underwear. So you know this evidence is really meaningless or at best inconclusive. Um, and then the state's um, uh, response was always, well, he confessed um, and she ID'd him. Let's not forget. So, it, you know, whatever, whatever piece of evidence we could undermine or attack, uh, then they just sort of shifted focus or changed the theory of the case in order to maintain what they saw as the integrity of this conviction. Um, so we took the evidence the DNA evidence and filed um, a petition for writ of actual innocence based on the DNA evidence um, in the Virginia Supreme Court. And while the case was pending, the Virginia Supreme Court decided another case in which they said, uh, we're not gonna consider any DNA test results um, unless they were generated by the state lab. Well, that's a problem, right? Because the state lab couldn't get results in Darnell's case, as they can't in many cold cases, because they don't have um, the most recent technology that a lot of the private labs have. So Darnell's case is pending. We now have gotten word that this court doesn't look like they're going to consider his test results. So we filed um, a, a writ of actual innocence, a petition for writ of actual innocence based on non-biological evidence. We included the DNA test results as well as what we now knew from the victim that she didn't really ID anyone and what we now knew about this dirty cop. Um, and after, I would say we were in court for a couple years on those. Um, we lost the DNA one first and then um, we uh, litigated for probably another year the, the non-DNA one and lost that in the spring, what was, or July, June, July of this year. So mm. um, despite all of this evidence, uh, Darnell has lost, has continued to lose this, this fight in court. Fortunately, we had also filed, um, Darnell had been in prison so long that he was eligible for parole under this old law. Um, and so we had filed a parole petition based on his innocence and his sort of sparkling clean record. I don't think you had any <laughs> disciplinary actions in 27 no. years. Um, and so he was, he's technically out on parole um, and has his pardon petition still pending. Um, but this gives you some idea of what we're up against, right? Um, that his case, I think, should be very clear. Um, and yet we've been rejected at every stage of the litigation. And so his hope for an absolute pardon and exoneration is now within the hands of the executive. And it's also very, I think it's very notable, having lived in Virginia for such a long time, that the courts, which have never been defendant friendly, and I don't imagine they will be for a long time, but that the parole board is the responsive party here, that the parole board has become, is uh, much more understanding. And when we presented Darnell's case, it didn't take really very long to convince them that this was an innocent person. But the courts can't hear it, but, but the parole board does, which is just kind of amazing. Um, do you want to talk about getting out? Mm. Whew. September 25th, 2018, I'll never forget that day. <laughs> I'm telling you, because from, like I said, I was on bond until I was 19, so, you know, I had been, I had missed, imagine this now, every, thing about the computer, about technology, about vehicles. I couldn't tell you a 2001 Lexus from a 2018 Lexus. Because oh, even no. though they, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm just telling you. I'm just, I'm just, there are many people. Oh, well, well, you know, well, you know, you got to keep in mind now, uh, all these things had bypassed me. Even certain movies, you know, because like I say in an institution, you might get a TV show, but the TV show might be late, might not be something current. I might be watching something that came out in 1996 and 2013. And so I'm thinking, man, when did this come out, dude? And a guy who may have been locked up only a few years is like, well, man, that's been out since the 90s. I'm like, wow, you know, fashion trends have passed me. Uh, the death of loved ones, you know, my father died, you know, he was waiting for me to come home, you know, help me start a business and everything. Uh, 
man, all my grandparents died. A lot of aunts, a lot of uncles. I had like five people die before, man, like 2010, you know? So all these things had passed me by. I had never seen my nieces on the street. I have one niece who's 26, the other one's 15. Never seen them on the street. Because of the institutional rules, one of them I've only seen one time in, in, in life until I walked out September 25th, 2018. So, you know, everything I've seen go on behind bars, you know, no going to funerals, none of that stuff like that. Just, you just have to deal with it in, in that cage. I'm gonna call it a cage because that's what it was, you know. A cage that I had to determine, it's gonna have to be a university for me because, like I said, I'm not gonna allow the circumstance to, to change me, to alter who I am. And so September 25th, 2018, never forget that morning. Uh, they woke me up like three o'clock in the morning, and they were, you know, they were telling me I had already been through the reentry program or whatever, right? But they were telling me, look, you know, this this is your day. I'm like, man, I held on for this whole time. I bit my tongue, believe me, you, because you have to bit, bite your tongue in that type of environment. You're around a 900 individuals every day. <laughs> I said I had to bite my tongue every day. But officers, you might have officers, no, no offense, you know, I had an officer. I'm 47 years old. You might have an officer who's 23, he's telling you, look, go in the cell, <laughs> go to bed. <laughs> so you think about that, right? So I was like, man, I'm finally going to be free from this. I'm finally going to be free to all the plans. I, I, I wrote down all the dreams of uh, having my own business, to get married to my fiance. All of these things I'm saying now I'm going to be able to do as a, you know, as a free man. And so on, 20, on the 25th of September, 2018, I went to that parole office and all that time, Jenny and Deirdre and Dennis and uh, the rest of the team, they fought for me, it paid off. I'm not quite sure that it didn't feel like it to them that everything was gonna pay off. And they probably thought I was just being overly optimistic. I'm quite sure, <laughs> you know what I mean? But like I said, you know, one thing I say is that at 18 years old, when I, I felt peaceful that I would walk out, that, it never left me. I don't know whether y'all ever had something that you, you couldn't see it, but you just felt that, you know what? This is not gonna end this way. And that's how I felt about that. And so September 25th, 2018 is the day I saw that manifestation. Um, you know, to see their lovely faces that day, that was beautiful because all the other times I saw them in a little room, little box room and, you know, sitting talking and Meeting Deirdre and meeting Jenny. Jenny the serious one. Deirdre funny. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. I can be funny. You know, seeing them, seeing them, like I say, I think I think what you called me was salty. <laughs> um, I mean, but like I say, I, I love I love them both. You know, I I love them because that was one of the few times. Even though I had a lot of favor in the institution, I had a good record with staff and inmates and stuff like that. Twenty something years, never, no fights or any of those things, no accusations or nothing. As a matter of fact, the, the, the inmates automatically assumed when I got in there from the beginning that I was innocent immediately. It's just my personality, you know, or whatever, right? You know, and you, it's kind of hard to con guys who, you know, who, who've been living around, you live around 900 cons every day. So it's kind of hard to con guys like that, right? They can see right through you. And so seeing them on the outside and seeing the student who actually started my case, Dennis, Dennis Barrett, I'll never forget that day, you know? Being able to uh, just sit down at a table and eat around family. You know, I had missed all those Thanksgivings from the time I was 19. I missed all my Thanksgivings, all my Christmases, all my birthdays. I had missed those things because I was behind bars trying to fight to get out, you know? And so that was uh, the most special day of my life. You know, I, I count every day, after that I counted every day like that. And I said to myself, I said, I'm gonna honor the work that the Innocent Project put in. Those students, they put in, I said I was gonna honor that. I was gonna honor that by going forth and fulfilling all the dreams I had planned all those years. You know, to come out, start a business. Um, trying to get, right now I'm in the process of uh, trying to get the ministry so I can be in my own church and all those other things. So, you know, I'm just trying to, uh, as I hear young people sitting there, I live my best life now, you know? <laughs> I mean, for real, you know? There's no need to be afraid. Like I said, I faced the worst you could pretty much face, you know, and it, and it didn't break me down, you know? I don't call myself a survivor, I call myself an overcomer, you know? And like I said, I'll never forget the work that the Innocence Project has done. You know, I've done, I've done a lot of interviews and to me, I'm at, I'm at home with UVA. 
Uh, my first week out, I came up to UVA. A lot of y'all probably weren't here, right? <laughs> but you know, but my first week out, I, you know, I, I came up to UVA. You know, they had that fundraiser. That was beautiful because I'm thinking. You, keep in mind now, they had lovely. They put me in a lovely hotel, and I had just came out of a dirty cell <laughs> for real. <laughs> I don't care what you sweep it, how you try to freshen it up, or what you do. It is still a cell, and. Just to, you know, just to be uh, welcome like that, you know, with the staff from UVA, that was, that was beautiful to me, you know. I, I, felt, I felt human again, you know. Uh, so I would say uh, it's kind of hard for me. I'm not the type of person I express a lot of emotions, right? So uh, I'm just kind of slow walking. And, uh, I just felt honored. I felt honored. I still do feel honored. I feel honored. Every day when I, when I wake up in the morning, First thing on my on my mind, uh, my cousin always say, "You trying to say I got to get that money?" I said, "No, that's not what it is." <laughs> I said, the first thing on my mind is honoring the promise I made my father. My father, before he died, he he told me something on his deathbed. He said, "Son, he said you know too much to come out here and work for somebody else." He said, "Man, why don't you come out here, man, and open your own business?" I said, "I had already planned that, Dad." He said, "Son, come out here, man, and, and build your legacy." And you know what I said? First thing on my mind is legacy. First thing every morning, I get up four o'clock every morning. I don't lay in the bed. I get up, I'm studying. I'm, if I'm not studying scriptures, I'm studying some type of form of business. If I was in my college class, I'm studying my college class because I said I'm going to honor everything that the Innocence Project invested in me. I know, and I, I really appreciate y'all both. I really appreciate y'all both. You know, crazy you out there. I adore you. <laughs> <laughs> You and Nikki want to talk a little bit about just sort of what it's like to try to start and maintain a relationship and how you're, you know, you're trying to maintain this human relationships on the outside and what it was like from Nikki's perspective well, too. Nikki, well, you should, Nikki should tell us mm -hmm. how she met and how long she visited. Okay, um, let's see. I met Darnell actually when he was out on bond. Um, we became friends. Um, Let's see, we were friends for a good little while. Um, he was trying to have a relationship with me, and uh, yeah, it's like, he's in prison, you know. Not <laughs> <laughs> I'm free, you know. I was like 20-something, so. <laughs> so, um, so I disappeared for a little while, y'all, and uh, um, went out and did my little thing, I think. And, uh, but I always thought about him, and uh, to go back, to go back. Um, when I first met Darnell, he was up front with me about his case, what was going on, and um, I automatically knew he was innocent. I just, it just, I just felt that that's what the case was that he didn't do it. So, I'll go back to when I left and I came back. So I was, I always thought about him and remembered him. I said, let me check and see if he's home yet, because I knew he was innocent. I knew at some point he was going to be coming home. So um, I found a letter of his and um, I called his mom. I love his mom, and um, talked to his mom. And he was, uh, he was in Greenville back at that particular time. So um, I wrote him and told him what was going on with me, and then eventually we were able to reconnect. And um, and that was like in 2000 when I came back into his life, him into mine. And um, we got together in 2001. He asked me to marry him, and we got engaged. So we had been engaged and been together for 18 years. And Come so, on now. Um, so eight, yes, 18 years. And then he got out and put a ring on it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, I have to bow to Taz. Um, should we? Do we have time for questions or Can no? we ask a couple questions from you guys? Because I'm sure we were, you know, we were trying to make him say nice things about us, but you guys might have questions. And y'all forgive me because it's kind of hard to condense a lot of that stuff because I had a lot of twists and turns in this case, right? So uh, forgive me if uh, <laughs> we didn't he, tell you everything. You know? he, he's absolutely right that at, at the end of every phone call we had with him, he would say, everything's going to work out. And Jenny I and I would look at each other yep. and be like, how in the world we're going to let him down so hard? And it was constant, though. All right, you guys, <laughs> ask questions. I've got a question to start off. Good. Darnell, the photo that's up on the screen behind you is one of my favorite photos of all time, and I wondered if you might tell us a little bit about how you were feeling in that moment, who, else, who, who you're hugging, and, and how that all came to be. 
Yeah, that's my 81-year-old mother. Um, my mother had been sick for several years, you know. I didn't know how serious, you know, she's in the first stage of dementia, you know. So when I came home, my mom, she knew who I was, but she thought I was her brother coming out of the military. Uh, that was precious to me because I hadn't held my mother in like 11 years, you know. I talked to her on the phone, uh, but you know, she couldn't come in because my, my family's like this, they're very protected of, uh, protecting of the matriarch. So uh, that was the first time I had seen my mom in like 11 years, yeah, 11 years. Yeah. Hi, Darnell. Thank you for coming. Um, so my question is about a comment you made earlier. You fancied yourself an institutional lawyer when you were trying to deal with some pro se. So what were the resources that you had? Did you feel like you had enough resources? What, mm. what would, what, like, walk us through what was that like trying to like take on the whole state by yourself? Um. That right there, uh, I just felt like it was, it was a challenge. Um, and it was a challenge that by that time I had built up enough fortitude, I said, these people gonna let me out of here. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with you, right? You know, so I would go through my old lawyers. I, would, I, I saw all the holes because if you know the truth, right, then, you know, a little fraudulent information, you kind of can pick through it or whatever. And so that's what I did. But when I did mine, I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I said, uh, I, I, I fasted 21 days before I did my brief. I did. I did it wrong, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm serious. You know, I'm, I'm serious because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person of faith. I held my faith. I've been like that. I've been in the, I've been studying scriptures. Since I was like 18 years old. So I'm like, you know what I'm gonna do? I said I'm gonna fast on this. I'm gonna pray on this. I'm gonna study this law. And so I sat at the table. I studied law. I was studying the DNA. I studied um, old cases, and then you know other little books I can get out of the library which were, weren't very good. They weren't really that much up to date, but nevertheless, you have to work what you uh, have. And so that's what I meant when I fancied myself <laughs> institutional lawyer. And to, to be honest with you, right, they really don't have a lot of good materials, especially where I was at Greenville. You know, they, they didn't have a lot of good materials. Not too many institutions that I know of really do right now. Maybe it's changed over the past year, but to me, they don't have a lot of good materials and so that was, that was hard, you know, it's kind of set up to fail. You know, even an institutional lawyer, I, I would ask an institutional lawyer, because once I, I put a brief together, I would say, well, what do, you, what do you think about this? Well, he said, well, I can't talk to you about that. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, aren't you an institutional lawyer? He said, well, yeah, I, I just, I'm here to give you advice. I said, I'm asking you for advice. They would say something like, well, you know, um, well, uh, 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 is anyone in the hallway <laughs> after this guy? That's what they would do. You know, so I'm like, well, this thing's really set up for you to fail, you know? So I, ha I, had, to do it, I had to do it myself, I'm gonna be honest with you, right? And with the help of legal expertise of several other people who may have studied some type of paralegal courses, you know, all kind of people get locked up. I, you know, I pretty much would, you know, just uh, ask advice, and I did it based off the premise of that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, so I was just wondering, out of the people that you interacted with, while you were incarcerated. Um, did you come across people often that were innocent, one, that you believe were innocent, and two, even if they were guilty, how often it was that you came across people that were just like, man, this guy should not be in here, you know? I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, right, I ran across about six people that I really believe were innocent. I'm not talking about people that say, well, you know, I, I you know, um, he pulled the trigger, but you know, I you know, but I was with him. I knew what he was going to do, you know, because you got a lot of situations like that. Guys would say, you know, I'm innocent. Me, I look at it as not circumstance, not not just circumstantial and factual, but actually innocent. And I only ran across about six guys that I ran across, and one of them, and actually two of them were released. Uh, Earl Ruffin, he was one of the guys. Uh, Thomas Hainsworth, he was one of the guys. They actually proved he was innocent, and you know, it just. It was something like a kindredness about that. Uh, and a lot of the guys, one, matter of fact, one of the guys, another guy, uh, his name is Marvin Grimm. Well, he called me yesterday to let me know, look, he's been locked up like 42 years. He's under the case of the New York Innocent Project. He's under that caseload. 
Well, he made parole yesterday, so he'll be getting out. That's beautiful. And so that's just to let you know, this, now this guy, his case, like I say, is full of confessions. Uh, it's full of things that, circum, you know, real circumstantial stuff that you seem like you couldn't really separate it. But nevertheless, their tenacity to work for him, he's about to go home. Even though, you know, they haven't totally, you know, got him exonerated. But nevertheless, you know, this is a next step to get free and to go it further fight it. So you got to realize something. Even though it seems as if it may never happen, you're only sometimes a few steps away from an actual breakthrough. I say about the other question you asked me, um, I ran across that all the time. Like I told you, you know, uh, I'm type A personality, right? <laughs> and so I, w I was never a passive any type individual. I always, when I'm in an institution, you know, I always was mentoring guys. I mentored gang members. I mentored a lot of people. And so I used to go work out. I used to do a lot of things like I was real athletic. So I really never ran across those issues about a guy doubting whether or not I was a person who's a, a sexual offender or whatever. I didn't run across that, you know. Uh, I told you uh, a lot of guys just assume, you know, that I was in there behind something I didn't do, you know, and so that's how it was. So when actual, you know, the newspaper started coming out and they kept saying, well, you know, there's possible DNA that Darnell Phillips didn't do the crime. Well, guys, some, a lot of guys had walked with me so long because some of the guys I knew for like over 20 years. They were like, well, man, that's, that's not news to me. You know, and that's, that's serious, you know, I'm, and I'm honest with you, right? I didn't run across that with staff. I, I never ran across that now. You know, I say, God, grace, you know, in the times I came into prison, prison if you came there with a sexual offense, you, it was rape. I'm being honest with you. There's rape. Their guys getting beat up. Their guys are getting extorted for money from their families. They're getting their canteen stolen or whatever. I didn't run across that. No. I wouldn't let that happen, but I, I never ran across any of things like that. Yes, ma'am. Oh. oh. Tasha and then over here and then Tamale. I want to say thank you again for coming back to what you call your home. I think your resilience and your just over passionate and like optimistic personality right now is your aura is very like genuine, like good to see, like despite your adversities. Um, my question was because you were able to maintain this optimism throughout the ups and downs and the plateaus of your process of getting your innocence. What do you think on the tail end of things, your entry into society, what do you wish would have been available to you in terms of you talked about, you know, the financial literacy or like how much technology has changed. What do you wish was more available to you at the tail end of things? That's part of your reentry. What do you wish they would have done? I wish, to be honest with you, I, I expected, I thought Virginia would be a little fair because, you know, it was over 20 something years. I thought I would be cleared and I thought I'd be compensated, you know, because First, I didn't really didn't care about conversation. I just want to be home with my mother. I didn't want another fam. I didn't want another family member to die without me being there. So I really didn't care. But I, I had wanted to be compensated uh, so I can start businesses, so I can start uh, my ministry, so I can help some people. But since Virginia hasn't relented in that, I had to go about it uh, another way. Um, I wish that I would have had. Uh, Capital. Everybody don't think like me now, because some people like to nurse their hurts. A lot of guys I knew that were innocent, even when I went to New York, uh, talked to a lot of guys from different states. Even though these guys have been compensated, they still want to nurse their hurts. So you have hurt millionaires. And I'm like, man, brother, you, know, <laughs> you have another opportunity. But I understand that that is a wound that they'll probably never get over. Um, I guess it's God's grace I'm resilient to. I wish I would have had someone to teach me more about the computers, you know. Uh, I had someone teach me somewhat, but a lot of times I realized everybody's not as dead of breast, right? That's what was sad to me because I'm like, I've been gone forever, you know. I had archaic computers in the prison. But when I came home, I needed someone to sit down with me and, and teach me these things, you know. Not on the go, but teach me these things. So it was money. Uh, I needed a person to talk to. Because uh, by me coming out, you know, I didn't have anyone to keep in mind now, regardless of how they let me out, I was a person wrongfully incarcerated. And so you can get, it's been, it's been studied that you have PTSD pretty much, for real, for real, right? There's no way in the world you, you can be exposed to certain things like that 
and uh, go through that trauma without having some type of PTSD. Um, I wish I would have had someone to, you know, hey, uh, Darnell, look, you know, I understand this, or um, uh, tell me about it, you know. To be honest with you, unless it's an interview, I've never had anyone ask me, what did you go through? What was going on? I've kept pretty much that stuff to myself. You know, people do it on the interview because they find the story, I guess my personality, you know, kind of. But to me, I wish I would have had counsel, finances, and somebody teach me about technology and, you know, uh, things worked out. You know, thing, thing, things are working out and things have worked out. You know, like I said, uh, through Jenny and Deirdre, you know, uh, and Jason Flom, you know, I, I got a vehicle, nice 2016. You know, I got my, my van for my detailing business. Jason Flom, he helped me get in business for, you know, detail company. And he's also trying to help me to expand. Um, so those were just three of the things I saw that I really needed, right? Um, but I would say, and speak on behalf of those who are coming out now, I would say finance, and I would say a whole lot of, uh, I would say a whole lot of love, a whole lot of people that really, can understand that this person had been through some things, you know. I've, I talk to a lot of people, and they think because they see certain things, you're, you're, you're strong. I say, I am strong, I know this. But I still like to, how you doing, man, you know. I, see, I don't get that, you know. I really don't get that. Uh, because people automatically assume because of my personality, say, well, you got this. They'll say, you got this. I've been to church with pastors. They say, man, you got this. I'm like, brother, you ain't sat down and talk with me, man. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't know. Suppose I wasn't like that. And so I say on the behalf of other people who are coming out, they need people, they need people who are set in place like counselors. They need finance. They need a little finance base because everybody's family's not set up for that. Uh, they need someone to really reintegrate them into uh, society about computers because I'm going to be honest with you, as small as that seemed to a lot of people, a cell phone was fascinating to me. And before I learned how to really work this thing, I was perplexed. You know, something like that can send a person who's been gone a long time, that can, that can send them into discouragement because they can automatically see there's a big deficit in my life. I don't even know how to work a cell phone. You, it, it might sound basic, but those things are hurtful to people coming out like that. You know, So I would just say, you know, just be patient with people like that. You know, be patient with that. Patience, money, uh, kind words. You know, that'd be real beneficial. I'm just saying from a person that talks to guys who've been exonerated, that's what they need, you know. It's not always about the money. It's about just showing you care, you know. Yeah, you had your hand up. Yeah. Um, what are the implications or restrictions that you deal with being out on parole? And what will it mean to you when me, I'll tell you, I'm going to reverse that. First thing I'm going to do, man, I'm going to get on I-95 and I'm going to ride to D.C. without telling anyone. <laughs> the reason why is because I studied slavery a lot, right? I'm going to be honest with you, right? And, you know, they used to have traveling passes and stuff like that. Well, if I want to go to New York, which, which, to which I have, if I want to go, they don't do it if I'm, like, in Virginia or whatever because they know my attorneys or whatever, right? I have to ask permission. I'm 47, about to turn 48, you know. You know, I'm not a childish person, so I don't want to be asking, some, can, I, can I go here or can I go there? And so me, that lack of control in my life, even though things are, they're pretty good, but just that lack of control, um, I, can't go, I can't go to the gym and work out like I want to. I, I love that. I love, I love health. I can't go to the gym like that. So that's kind of fell off a little bit. I can be creative, do push-ups or whatever, but I want to go to a gym. I love being around people. Um, I can't talk to, oh, y'all are young people, right? But I can't talk to juveniles. I spend a majority of my time in prison mentoring juveniles. I can't do that, you know? And I, how can I mentor somebody if I can't be around you? Um, when I came out, I give it to you like this, uh, since my record had been totally clear, I couldn't even get a job. Until I got into business, that was the first time I was able to work. I couldn't even get a job. And these people really wanted to help me, but because of stipulations on paper, they couldn't do it. Um, so me personally, to me, it'll be absolute freedom for me. It'll be absolute freedom. One thing I deal with now 
is the registration. Every time I register, I put my, you know, put my fingerprints. If I, let's say for instance, if I get something done on my vehicle or whatever, right, that are, that are kind of obscure or whatever from what they took the pictures of, I have to register that. If I want to get online and start a, y'all might get on there and start a Facebook account. I can't start a Facebook account. I can't even go on Facebook. If I want to get on Instagram, to which you know I'm, I'm permitted to, guess what? I got to register that. So sometimes I might hear something on my phone, a ping, I'm like, what is that? You know what it is? It's the state police making sure that this is that exact email address or, you know what I mean? So it's like they watch everything. But now the good side about that is I have a parole officer that she, she, she knows I'm innocent, you know? She said from the core of my being, when I met you, I knew you were innocent. So she said, I don't have a problem with that. Um, and everybody I've met, I've never met anyone since I've been out accuse me, well, man, this is the guy who's, I, I've never had any of that at all, right? So that's, that's beautiful, right? But like I said, I'm going to, and I told her, you know, I love her, but like I said, I'm going to take a ride to D.C. by myself, you know, and because that, that's, that's going to mean freedom. That's going to mean the end of me saying, hey, uh, like a kid, can I go here? Uh, I mean, come on, I'm almost, I'm almost 50, man, you know what I mean? And so absolute freedom, that's what I'm going to enjoy. If I want to get on, a, I can't even get on, a, I don't think I can get on a cruise ship because of the stipulation, you know, so. So um, Taz is uh, saying we have time for one more question. Mm -hmm. I'm going with you to DC, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> it won't be complete freedom. Um, is there one more question before? Okay. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, thanks for coming. Really yes, sir. Story. Um, secondly, when you started this process and said that you weren't going to let either change who you are to now feeling like you're just more of an overcomer than a victim, do you think it did change you, or do you think that your personality has stuck with you throughout? Stuck with me, absolutely stuck with me. I'm the same person that I was when I went in, you know. Beyond now, when I say I'm the same person, I don't mean that I haven't learned different things and been exposed to different things, because it's kind of hard to be in that environment. I've seen people killed, overdose, suicide, uh, people raped. I've seen a lot of things, you know. So that portion has made me more compassionate, you know. But as far as changing me, to make me want to be a mean or a hateful individual that despise society, untrustworthy? Not at all, my friend. Not at all. I still say I'm an overcomer. Not a, I'm an overcomer, you know? Yes, sir. And I'm, I'm going to get better, too, you know? You just watch. <laughs> I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better and better. I've been out here now, like I said, 428 days. But my, tomorrow, 429. I'm going to be better, and I'm going to strive to be better so I can be beneficial to more people. So. I'm so humiliated. All right, everyone, thank you, Darnell. Thank you. This was wonderful. If you want to stay?